This is A Drink with a Friend. I am Tish Oxenreiter. Seth Haynes is off being a lawyer. So today I am joined by my teaching colleague, Joshua Gibbs, who I have been thrilled to talk with for many months now um, because he has recently written a book that I can't stop talking about that you've heard me already mention a time or three again on the podcast. As we always start our shows, we're going to talk about what we are drinking. Joshua, what are you imbibing on this lovely afternoon? It's a cherry blossom LaCroix. Ooh, fancy. All right. I have a very boring black coffee because that's just how I roll right now. All right. So, Joshua, you have written a book called Love What Lasts. It comes out, I think, at the time of our speaking next week, right? June 2nd? Is that the release date? Yes. I've spoken to a couple people who have got their copies in the mail in just the last two or three days. So I think it's shipping. All right. That's fun. Yeah. Publishing can be a little bit of a question mark in that regard. All right. Well, I get a lot of ARCs, advanced reader copies. This is the first time in years I got an ARC that I could not put down. So you sent it or your publisher sent it to me um, on our 20th anniversary. And I basically read it the entire weekend we were away and read much of it out loud to my husband. So um, you have encapsulated the things that I have thought for years, but could not put into words. And you did a much better job. So let's just start at the beginning. What made what compelled you to write Love What Lasts? It was many years in the classroom. It was many years of teaching classic literature to high school students, many of whom were very much or are very much enthralled by popular culture and recognizing that there's a pretty big difference between the kind of books and music that comes and goes versus the kind of books and music that last indefinitely. The realization of the book probably occurred three or four different times. One of those times was maybe six years ago now when according to, or because of my schedule, I was, I was teaching the same material four times a day. And uh, I had four different sections of early modern literature. And I taught, I remember several occasions where I was teaching the same scene from Hamlet four times over the course of a day. And I was reading the same lines from the plays and I was making some of the same points about it. And I had this realization that it was still good the fourth time over the course of the day. And that I was not loath to read it. I wasn't loath to talk about it. And that some of the better discussions occurred late in the day, not early in the day. And it, and it just kept giving. So I I probably Mm -hmm. read and taught Hamlet, 30 or 40 times. And it still seems fresh every time I come to it. And uh, so one of the things behind the book was realization that this is really incredible. It's really strange, in fact, that a book would be good that many times in a row. And that there was something worth considering about anything that was that good that many times in a row that that you never, ever got sick of it. That, That was probably the first moment when the idea for the book occurred to me. Okay. And I think you hit on something because the pop culture with which uh, our kids are enmeshed. I mean, honestly, many adults are too. Yeah. um, Has, I feel like reached a point where they used to say we were in a golden age of television, maybe like 10 years ago. And I feel like we have not seen anything resembling (laughs) 
good quality television. I feel like an old lady when I say this, but yeah. truly, except maybe from my BritBox account um, in that long. So we are just oversaturated with really mediocre stuff at best. And I think of what you say in your chapter on common and uncommon things regarding that. Explain to us what you mean by that. Uh, where, where are you going with that idea? Of common and uncommon things? Yes. Yeah. So the, the thesis of the book is that all cultural artifacts can be put into one of three groups, uh, the common, the uncommon, and then the mediocre. And um, not every book is Hamlet, right? Not every book is Paradise Lost. Not every piece of music is um, Mozart's Requiem. Uh, not every poem is uh, Four Quartets. Um, but that doesn't mean that something's bad just because it's not Hamlet. Um, a play isn't bad simply because it's not worth reading 40 times over the course uh, you know, of a 10-year career or a 20-year career. Um, there are some things that are good that are not going to last forever, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. They're just good for a time. They're good for a generation or two, and they repay consideration, but they're not eternal. And so the, the example that I give, um, like a great common piece of music uh, in the book is Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, which I think is is going to last another 20 years. I think it holds up well. You can listen to it a couple times a month and it always sounds good. It's worth considering. It's not profound, but it's not Mozart's Requiem. Neither is it the kind of music that comes and goes in a year. And, and the kind of cultural artifacts that come and go in a year and are wildly popular for a short period of time and then absolutely go on and no one cares about them anymore. Uh, in the book, I refer to these things as mediocre and they, they tend to be Big, sensual, sexy, funny, hilarious, um, slick, catchy kinds of things that that generate huge audiences, huge revenue, and then are easily replaced with things that are also uh, sensual and sexy and funny and hilarious, uh, but just different. And um, mediocre things are the kind of things that we don't really feel a compulsion to go back to. Common things are the, the sort of things that we feel compelled to go back to for a time. And then uncommon things are things that generation after generation, century after century, we keep going back to. And it, and it seems that we can never exhaust their depths. So listeners who are parents or maybe just listeners who care about what it is they consume themselves, where do you strike the balance in the real world? You know, do we only consume uncommon things uh, common and uncommon things and just ignore the mediocre or, I mean, like what, what have you found works best for you and for your students? I think that whenever you consume something that's mediocre, you have to be aware that there is a high cost to consuming that thing. Whereas I don't believe that there's a cost to consuming common things. I think that common things prepare us for uncommon things. I think that normal things prepare us for special things. Whereas I believe that mediocre things corrupt our ability to enjoy common or uncommon things. So if you watch, uh, you know, if you watch a, a good movie, like um, my favorite example, one that I've been using for a long time is Ordinary People, Robert Redford film mm -hmm. from 1980, um, mm -hmm. which is a, a film I think that you could watch 10 times and it's still good. That's not a film that's going to last for 500 years. People are not going to be watching that 
you know, uh, next millennium. I think that we're still going to be reading Hamlet next millennium. Um, but watching ordinary people is not going to corrupt your ability to enjoy Hamlet. I think that Hamlet's the kind of um, rare, remarkable thing that makes more sense if you're schooled on um, garden variety dramas like um, ordinary people. Whereas I think that a movie like Pirates of the Caribbean is going to wreck your ability to enjoy ordinary people or Hamlet. Um, something like Pirates of the Caribbean or Transformers, whatever Marvel things in the theater, plays up all the most basic, most unsophisticated, uh, most sensual desires of the audience. Um, it doesn't really offer much in the way of intellection, contemplation. And if you're if you're, uh, you know, raised on these on these spectacles, doing a movie that's that's as basic and common as ordinary people is going to seem untenable. It, it's going to seem too slow to care about. It's going to seem uh, it's not exciting enough. It's the, the men aren't um, performing acts, of, you know, feats of strength, and the women aren't wearing, um, you know. Uh, skimpy clothes, and it's just it's just not a feast for the senses. It's a feast for the mind. So, so I think that that's worth recognizing anytime that you sit down to something that's mediocre, um, mm-hmm. some big sensual kind of thing, whether it's music or films or what have you, uh, that it's it's making it harder for you to enjoy all the really good things out there. Um, and I would say it's probably making you hard. It's harder for you to enjoy even going to church. Mm. That even really important spiritual things are far more difficult, far more hard to enjoy after you've been exposed to things that that um, flatter your senses. Yeah, yeah. We have told our kids several times church is not supposed to be fun. Right. <laughs> it's okay that you don't find it fun. Yeah. That's not the point. Um, I think it's really interesting. We're having this conversation right at the start of summer because this is the the beginning of these sorts of movies. You know, my my youngest son was looking at the movie times because he was saying, "Gosh, it's been a long time since we've been to the movie theater. Let's go to the movies sometime this next week." He looked, and out of the eight films. I think I had not heard of four and the other four were banal at best. And so I said, right. you know, and he even agreed with me, like, um, never mind. You know, like there's there's nothing worth seeing. And I thought of this because I think you mentioned this in this book a few days ago. We ended up just watching um the Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, the you know, from the late eighties, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's a fine movie, right? It's not it's not gonna blow your socks off, but it's fine. But the cuts, the edits are slower. And it just feels like a slower movie that doesn't wipe me out when I'm done, even though it's just like, this is kind of silly and look at all the continuity errors. It's still, I don't know. It didn't make me feel like I needed to go take a shower afterwards, you know? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Even the, even the blockbuster films of the late eighties are, are often far more um, contemplative than the, than the blockbuster films of today. (laughs) And, and pace is a big part of that. Um, there's yeah. lots of downtime. There's space in between the scenes where you've got nothing to stare at. You can you can merely reflect on what you've seen over the last 20 minutes. Um, I, uh, I I think of that all kind of started to go away. Um, I think that J.J. Abrams was a big part of that going uh, of that <laughs> going by the wayside. I, I've heard that J.J. Abrams' like theory of filmmaking, and you can see it in the in the Mission Impossible film that he did 
was to just chop off the exposition of the film and to start right at the moment when people start shouting and running and screaming. So, so like if you go back and you watch like an eighties action movie, like Die Hard or Lethal Weapon or something like that, it opens with, you know, that you're in, when you sit down to watch one of those, you know, that you're in for about 20 minutes of no one getting shot. Right. Right. Uh, The beginning is going to establish the characters. And if it's Die Hard, it's John McClane on the airplane and on the limo ride over and the Christmas party. And you know that, that, (laughs) Um, you've got some time to kind of settle into things. Uh, but at some point, I think in the last 20 years or so, um, there's this assumption that the audience does not want 10 to 20 minutes to settle into things, that they want immediate payoff uh, for the for the cost of the ticket. Um, and that does make modern action films, modern blockbusters feel very different than, mm-hmm. than they were back in the 80s. You um, wrote a post for the CRC blog a few years ago that I still think about um, whenever we are having family movie night. And I don't remember if this was your ultimate point, but you had made an offhand comment about how with your own children, you would rather watch a, um, I don't remember if you said a rated R movie, but have to like deal with the aftermath of some of the content than watch a made for kids movie. Right. Yeah. Um, And, and I have found that to be the case. We have a chalkboard in our house where we just write down movies as we think of them. And none of them are kids' movies because I just – I can't be bothered, I guess. And so um, I, I think of – one of my readers emailed me. I, I put out a, a, li- a reading list for a rising senior in high school for her summer a few days ago. And she asked me, okay, what about my middle schooler who has lost her love of reading because of her particular teacher? Mm-hmm. All she wants to do is watch TV now. What should I do? for her summer. And before I say what I would say, I'm curious what you would say to the parents listening right now who think like, great idea, but my kid does not have a taste for common or like, definitely not uncommon, but not even common things. They only like mediocre. What should I do? Um, You've got to lead the way for starters. Um, I think there's a lot of parents that regard good taste as a sort of thing that you enforce on your children as opposed to the sort of thing that you lead them in. So, I'd be willing to bet that a parent that's that's put themselves or their family in that position is probably going to need to make some personal changes, not just enforce changes on someone else. Um, so that's a that's a first thought. I'd also say that that some kind of period of fasting or abstinence from any sort of entertainment is probably a great segue into a more humane approach to it on the other end, right? Like Chesterton says this in the biography of St. Francis that. Uh, the Olympics and the theater had to go through a thousand year period of purgation uh, to lose all their demonic influence before they could be brought back and, and reinstalled in Christian society. So um, if the if the family has kind of lost control of, of entertainment, I think probably a, a period of purgation is necessary in order to restore some sense of gratitude for any sort of entertainment on the other side. But that's just yeah. that's kind of off the cuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I I was thinking. First of all, go camping right. <laughs> or go on a lot of walks. Do something in nature, which you also mention in the book, um, that the necessity of nature. Um, but also, uh, it, it is a muscle that requires you know flexing and working out and building and getting stronger. That you know, if somebody has been on a steady diet of Babysitter Club books, right. they're not going to suddenly be able to enjoy Hamlet right. suddenly. You know, yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about that idea of nature. I was surprised to see a chapter on nature, and yet I nodded all my way through it. Um, what were you going 
for with that chapter? In the chapter on nature, well, in that chapter, there's a lot on the connection between a respect for mother nature and for human nature. And I'm, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, for whatever reason, my, my parents were kind of opposed to the turn of phrase mother nature. They thought it sounded like (laughs) some sort of tree hugging environmentalist uh, kind of term. Uh Uh, But, you know, you read some classic literature, you find mother nature is an extremely old concept that, that people have been using for a long time. And I think that, that the term Mother Nature, uh, in just referring to creation, has, has a number of different points of contemplation. Uh, but one of them is that, uh, that nature itself is a kind of tutor. It's a kind of teacher. And that nature teaches you uh, something about your own nature as a human being. It, imp- it, imp- it kind of teaches you human limitations. There's something, uh, there's something very... Um, Nature is contented with very little. Um, there's uh, a lot in nature that, uh, and by, by nature, I mean like simply taking a walk outside, um, that reminds us and reinforces the fact that a good deal of our lives are beyond our control and that we mm. can't make ourselves into whatever we want to be. And that the gift of our bodies impose uh, imp- the gift of our bodies imposes a kind of limit on us, but but our bodies are also teachers that show us how we can do well, how we can thrive. And the things nature is human nature, mother nature is just a kind of blueprint installed in that thing, which which leads us back to God. And and so in in learning human nature. You come to respect the limitations that are, are imposed on us and you work to work, you know, you learn to work within those limitations. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the, that the, um, maybe the quotation that's referenced in that chapter on nature is from the Roman poet Horace. Uh, you may drive out nature with a pitchfork, but she keeps coming back. <laughs> and um, yeah. I, and I think that, that learning to respect nature makes you or forces you to be more content with the body that God's given you with the limitations of that body, with the limitations of the human lifespan. And it teaches you to work within those limitations as opposed to fighting them or complaining about them. So, so that's a big part of the argument in the chapter on nature. This is why I recommend everybody grow something. You know, I'm, I'm a hobby hobby gardener, a backyard gardener. And it is not at all with this lofty idea to feed my family of five, you know, in our, in our 0.5, you know, 0.15 acres of backyard. It's because we become more of who we're made to be when we grow stuff. So, you know, we grow tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and we, we fight the slugs and we, we dig in the dirt and we weed and we maintain it. And yes, it tastes better than the grocery store counterparts, but we mostly do it because we need to be people who grow things. Yeah. Um, that's what I tell our kids anyway. Yeah. You know, this makes you a better person, honestly, literally digging in the yard, um, just like chores, just like, you know, working with, with the seasons, just like, you know, learning that God made you finite and yet physical, yeah. not all in your head. So, yeah. All right. I think it's really cool that you go from nature to fakery. Mm. Tell me more about the concept of fakery. Fakery, a fake. 
well, I'm intrigued by fakes. I'm intrigued by the reason why we're sometimes content with fakes, but not at others. I'm, I'm interested in occasions mm. when we're contented with fakes. Um, there are some things that we're willing to accept a fake version of, but not others. And so the, the chapter on fakery spends a while delineating those occasions when we're content with a fake and when we're not. I think that the, the definition I put forward for a fake in that chapter is that a fake typically isolates the two or three most pleasant aspects of the real, blows them out of proportion, and then sets aside all the difficult or, or vexing aspects of a thing. Um, a fake often takes the diversity of the real and, and skims off all the diversity and leaves you with something very basic. Underneath it, uh, a fake is a kind of predictable reel. It's a cheap reel. It's a reel that you don't have to suffer for. It's, but at the same time, um, it's a reel that only exists in appearance, not in reality. Uh, fake things tend to not last long. As, as soon as a fake is damaged, we despair of it. We can afford another. Um, if you pay, if you pay $10,000 for a real Chanel handbag, the stitching comes out, you're going to get it repaired. If you pay $40 for a fake Chanel bag in Battery Park and the stitching comes out, you're just going to throw it away and buy a new one. It's cheaper just to get a new mm-hmm. one. Fakes are generally only persuasive if they're not inspected. So um, any kind of culture that works very quickly is incapable and disinclined to identify a fake. Fakes tend to be revealed only upon close examination, and we're simply not a culture that's capable of close examination. We're, we're bored too quickly. Uh, for this reason, fakes just pro- proliferate in our culture. Um, mm-hmm. uh, fakes also just ask less of us. A fake mm-hmm. entails less of a risk. Um, we're not really worried about fake things getting stolen. We're not worried about fake things getting damaged. And so there's, there's some things that are, I mean, there's fake designer goods, but then there's also fake flavors, there's fake friends, there's fake relationships. And all the, all the investigation or the commentary on fake things is sort of in service of this idea that there's fake ideas as well. There are fake entertainments. Uh, and then a good deal of the, a good deal of popular culture these days, um, is fake. Not the way that, um, well, it's kind of, kind of fake in the same way that, uh, a fake friendship is fake. Um, you go to see like a like a Transformers movie, and it has the you know the most two or three most easily identifiable and most pleasant aspects of a real story, but it takes all the difficult aspects of the the real story and, and jettisons them and leaves you with just the fun part. But in the same way that we're not willing to repair a fake handbag, we're not really willing to suffer for a, a fake piece of entertainment. So we watch Transformers four once, and then we. You know, we never see it again. We go on to Transformers 5 and 6 and, and so on and so forth. And, and so none of these things actually are worthy of our loyalty. We don't learn to love any story for a long time, any music for a long time. Uh, and I, I think we know that's because um, it's not worth suffering for and, and that there's nothing really to inspect. There's nothing worthy of a, of mm-hmm. a close examination. Yeah. It, it reminds me of getting in a little bit of hot water a year ago when I had made a statement in an essay I wrote that I did not like one of my pet peeves on the internet is when people talk about community, like my inner, my community, my, I mean, just using the word community 
when they are referring to some sort of virtual place. I mentioned that I, I did not believe that virtual communities were a real community. People pushed back on that. Um, but that's, to me, what it feels like. And it, it's also alluding to a little bit of what you say in your chapter on social media, that it gives us this just enough of the dopamine hit or just enough of the feel without any of the the work that is required to put into loving your neighbor totally. or, you know, or, or any form of actual real life, honestly, probably besides the hard work of loving your neighbor, the ordinary and boringness of loving your neighbor, right? Just the, the, the not having that constant barrage of pixels in your life. Um, that's, that's a huge, I think, version of fakery that we have opted into in exchange for a loneliness epidemic. Totally. Yeah. Um, I, one of those, uh, yeah, you could look at an internet community as a, as the two or three most pleasant aspects of a real community, but, but stripped of all of its um, really challenging, difficult aspects, especially <laughs> the, um, the fact that a real community always demands your attention right now. Whereas an mm-hmm. online community, everything's always infinitely deferrable to a more convenient time. No one has to yeah. be responded to now. Everyone can always be put off for later. And, and if you get bored with somebody, you can just toggle away, which is um, <laughs> not the way that a, yeah. you know, a dinner, uh, you know, actually having dinner with somebody works. If, they're, if you have dinner with a boring friend, you've got to figure out a way to make them interesting. Um, you've got to pay attention. <laughs> you've got to ask them more interesting questions. It's, it's on you. Whereas if your if your boring friend shares a picture of the green beans they made for dinner on Facebook, you just keep scrolling. <laughs> like you don't have to say anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm curious too. You know, you you make a case that we have been sliding into a love for mediocrity as opposed to uncommon things for centuries now. I think you even make the case post French Revolution, That's right, yeah. which uh, which I. Um, you kind of blew my mind a bit. And then I, I ended up doing a deep dive on the French revolution after reading this book and found your thesis to be proven true. Um, but I'm curious as a teacher of adolescence, I believe you've been doing it a bit longer than me. Um, have you seen an increased decline in the past few years of, of this with the onset of smartphones and social media? A, a decrease in, um, uh, in a love for uncommon things or, or an inability to, you know, read long form oh, or, yes. or stay focused. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I forget if I actually off the top of my head, I don't remember if I record this in the book, but, but maybe one of the easiest and most, most vexing ways that I see that is in teaching art history. Uh, when I, mm. when I first started teaching uh, in a classroom and, and did art history lessons like 15 years ago. Uh, my students were delighted any time that the that the overhead projector was out and and or the you know the video projector, and we were going to look at like a like a slideshow of pieces of art from the Metropolitan. And we took a trip to the Metropolitan, and and everyone was always you know, you know totally jazzed to see Baroque art and neoclassical art. Um, man, it's impossible to teach art history these days, like. Uh, when I when I do a slideshow of art, you know, broke art, neoclassical you know, art, students are bored instantaneously with it. It's amazing. Mm. Uh, at the beginning of my career, 15, 20 years ago, art history days were everyone's favorite days. Like, like everyone loved looking at paintings by El Greco and Titian. I think over the last three or four years, 
it's become the one of the most difficult things I have to do. My students do not look forward to art history. Like when I, I'm like, all right, we're going to do some, we're doing an art history lesson today. We're going to look at neoclassical painting. Everyone's bored to death. And, and I think that has to do with the fact that um, everyone's been trained to be bored by images almost instantaneously. So, mm-hmm. so social media prioritizes images that are sexy or funny, which means that teenagers don't know what to do with a painting of the Annunciation. It's not sexy and it's not funny either. Um, and when you, you know, when I put a slide of the Annunciation up there and it just kind of stays there and, and there's no ability to, you know, swipe your thumb and, and get it to something else, students kind of start looking around and, um, mm. uh, they get, they get like itchy, like the idea that you would, ha- that you would need to stare at something, especially a digital image for more than a few seconds is, is vexing to a great many of them. Mm-hmm. I can imagine most parents listening completely, you know, not in agreement with this experience, even if they haven't given a literal art history lesson. So I'm curious with this idea, aside from reading the book, which I truly believe everyone should do, I'm if we could take it with three people in mind, mm-hmm. uh, parents, just adults for their own personal betterment and teachers, because I want to talk about um, what you offer over the summer, uh, starting with parents, what what's to be done? Like if we want our kids to love what lasts, what what should we do? Um, in the final chapter of the book, I advocate um, one place to begin is a one for you, one for me kind of kind of policy, um, which is to say that you start um, making a kind of conscious effort to put better things into the cycle of your of your family's consumption of films and books and that sort of thing. Um, so if you I wouldn't advise anyone to like cold turkey. Only read Shakespeare for the rest of their life. And it's absurd. Um, But I would say that some kind of conscious effort needs to be made to get these things into the life of your family. And that up front, it's going to be even more difficult. And it's going to require not not just intentionality. I think it's a blasé word. It's going to require some kind of suffering. Like you've got to force yourself Mm. to do good. You can't expect doing good to be pleasant. And so if you're making this kind of conscious effort to have better taste and your and your taste as it as it is is kind of atrophied on candy for, for years, you should acknowledge up front that it's going to be unpleasant to begin with. Um, but I but I think that you've got to start thinking of books and films and music and even clothing and food as something other than entertainment. Um, mm. That you, you've got to think of it in terms of the health of your soul. Beauty is the food of the soul. Beauty is what strengthens the soul. What's it's what makes the soul happy and contented and satisfied. And it's it's a way of of putting a check on your vices. Um, so, as opposed to, I, I think the I think the wrong way to do it is to tell your kids, "Well, you've watched all these terrible movies. Now we're just going to watch really good movies and and make like this is going to be fun for everyone." Ordinary people is not more fun than the Avengers. It's a lot less fun. Like there's something more important than having fun. And and so <laughs> having good taste means admitting that there's something more important than having fun. So I, I would say that that uh, any kind of program or any kind of kind of reimagining of your of your family's 
um, entertainment habits has got to begin with the realization that there is something more important than having fun. And if, and if you can sell that, you know, if you can, first of all, believe it yourself and kind of sell your kids on it. Um, I think the whole process becomes much easier if, if you're not trying to make ordinary people or Hamlet or Paradise Lost into something that it's, that it's not, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a blast. Um, yeah. I mean, you can have a good time with it, but that's not primarily why it exists. Yeah. And if I can, um, oh, I don't know. I know people have heard me say this on on these chats many a time, but if I can be so bold as to say to prolong having a phone for as long as possible yes. as well for your kids. <laughs> yes. um, you know, my oldest is 18 and then I've got a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And I have seen the changes from the past, you know, eight years or so in what I would do differently from what I did maybe, you know, when my oldest was was my youngest age. And I am now very much firmly in the school of thought of if they don't need them before, you know, they leave the house, then there's no reason to get them. Yes. That's my personal take. What what have you seen in your students and your own children as a dad with phones? Um it's it's a little bit like asking uh, a doctor, should I start smoking cigarettes? Like, the, right. like asking a teacher what he thinks of phones is like asking yeah. a physician um, whether becoming a pack a day smoker is a good idea. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't know any teacher that thinks that phones are are a good profitable <laughs> that they have any place in a in a child's life. Um, yeah, I I look at phones as this kind of like adult world necessity. And you need to put them off for as long as you possibly can. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I would say that I'm not such an idealist as to say you can make it through the modern world without a smartphone. But I think it's also a bit cowardly to make like your your 14-year-old kid has to have one. Your, 14, yeah. your kid doesn't have a job. Your kid doesn't have business <laughs> contacts. Um, and, and if you... I mean, if you listen to parents who give their kids phones, like just ask them, was this a great idea? Like they all roll their eyes and they're like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, like in the uh, in the same way, I mean, nobody starts smoking and has their health like do a complete turnaround. No one out mm-hmm. there is like, um, you know, has high blood pressure and high cholesterol and is overweight and has a failing liver and everything just turned around as soon as I started smoking. <laughs> Um, right. so, uh, I mean, what I've seen as a teacher is, is nothing special. What I've seen as a teacher is what everyone sees. Like, like just go on to Google and ask, should I give my kid a phone? Like, you're going to get this mountain of evidence that says, absolutely not. You ask anybody, should I give my kid a phone? They're all going to say no. And, and mm-hmm. what's kind of frustrating as a teacher is that despite this like universal testimony of the entire world. like researchers, scientists, if you take them seriously, pastors, your friends, everything that you've seen while, while just walking around the world, negotiating everyday life, all of this says, don't give your kid a phone. Um, And and the number of parents who are like, yeah, you know, you know, I know it's not great for my kid, but you know, he witnesses to the kids on his travel soccer team and he plays youth band for the worship crew. So I think it's okay if I give him a phone, like people that make excuses for this are, well, everyone has an excuse. Everyone's got this reason yeah. why my kid can handle it and yours can't. Right. Um, my, my kids can't handle it. So, um, 
my kids don't have phones. They're not going to have phones till they leave the house and they, they don't have phones because yeah. they can't handle it. My kids aren't special. They, yeah. They're prone to all the same problems that every other human being is. And I don't want to make those worse by like giving them yep. a phone. Yeah. I, and, and I think for parents listening, I think it just involves doing the hard thing of telling your kid no and being okay with him being mad at you. Right. I, I had coffee with a friend yesterday and I'm sure she's listening and she knows this. She was struggling with this idea with her 13 year old begging for a phone because her, she is the only one quote. Right. And maybe she, she said she probably is actually the only one without a phone and her parents are saying no. And they, they say no, but then they, you know, off to the side when they're talking with their friends, their their fellow parent friends, they feel awful, like they're doing something wrong. Oh, and I think for mm-hmm. those listening who feel that, just know that it's not our it's not our job to be our kids' friends right now. Yeah. And and that, that just might be the case. So what about then, you know, you mentioned modeling at the top, and yeah. I think that's absolutely true. But even for those who aren't thinking about, like, how do I model this for the next generation, just for our own betterment, what would you suggest for the adult who wants to cultivate more of a loving what lasts, you know, worldview or paideia in their lives? Yeah, um, I think that you have to, um, oh, personally, as opposed to for your children, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um well, I think that that taking a kind of um, oh, what's the what's the term? Like, take stock, make a kind of inventory of of what you read and what you listen to. I I think that um, many people assume that their taste is better than it actually is. And, and when I say when I say taste, I mean the kind of the kind of artistic and cultural things that you take pleasure from. Um, what you give your time to. I, I think that a lot of people assume that their taste is, is better than it actually is. And that, that you might begin by making some kind of inventory of, you know, when was the last time you read a book that was more than 100 years old? Mm-hmm. Um, when was the last time you saw a film that was made before 1968? When was the last time you, you listened to a symphony from, from front to back? Um, do you have a favorite sculptor? Uh, if not, why not? It, and take some kind of inventory of how you actually spend your time. You might be surprised at, at what you find. Um, uh, to to go back to the the book, I think the the most immediate impulse for the book, which is described in in the first chapter, was a a weekend a few years ago when I, I went to the theater and um, ended up seeing a really stupid blockbuster as opposed to seeing. Uh, a really good film, a film that had been recommended to me and which I knew was going to be good. Um, and trying to justify why I had purchased a ticket for this blockbuster and realizing that there was no excuse for it. So I, I think that the good taste is a decision that you have to make and, and that it begins with a certain self-reflection and confession um, and, and some amount of re- repentance that you've not used your time wisely, that you have not heeded St. Paul's injunction to be very careful how you live and get the most out of your time. Like there's just no way that you can go see, you know, some Transformers movie and, and be like, <laughs> yeah, St. Paul, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm being very careful how I live. I'm getting best usage for my time possible. So I, it's, it probably begins with repentance. If, if you don't have good taste, confess your sins and, and admit that it's mm-hmm. a moral problem, that it's, that it's not, just a matter of taste or opinion, um, but that it is a moral concern, that, that you are not using your time wisely. 
Yes. I'm actually really glad you you brought that up, that this is this is objective, not subjective, and that this is actually a moral issue and is, it is not merely a matter of taste. Plus, if you consider the idea of tradition being, you know, as Chesterton puts it, democracy of the dead, yeah. that that there is something that to be said that if it has lasted at least a hundred years and we are still listening to it, reading it, what, what have you, it must say something universal that transcends time. Yes. Um, I overheard a podcast a week ago and I, I thought this was spot on. Someone had said that they want to be someone who reads philosophy or gets into philosophy. They just aren't yet. So they started reading this one person's interpretation of Plato and they just really did not like it. Or, or it was like a summary of Plato and their co-host suggested, why don't you just actually read Plato instead? <laughs> and she did. And she found it so much more palatable. Like mm. she was surprised at how much she liked Plato. Yeah. And so I'm th- I'm thinking of the re- listener right now who thinks, okay, but I'm not the type of person who reads, you know, Jane Austen. Right. But are you the type of person or do you think you are, you aren't because you have maybe watched a movie Pride and Prejudice instead right. of read the original source or something like that. Like maybe give it a whirl and see what you might surprise about yourself. Yeah. And if you, um, the, the other thing I would say is that um, too many of the decisions we make about what we watch, and what we read are kind of made like spur of the moment. Um, and that what you need is a recommendation from somebody that you trust. Um, so, this is true of books and it's, it's true of films. And this is a proposal at the end of the, at the end of love what lasts on how to get better taste um, is find some critics that you trust and take their advice. Um, mm-hmm. Don't sit down to scroll through endless options, uh, you know, endless Netflix options or prime options. Um, let someone else who's smarter than you tell you what to watch and what to listen yeah. to and what, what to read. Um, if you, like if you sit down to pick a movie on Netflix and you, you claim that you're looking for something good, uh, that's almost never true. Like I, I've <laughs> lost count of the number of times where I, I sit down on Netflix and like, I want to watch something good. And I'm scrolling past screen after screen after screen of good movies I've never seen before. Looking for some kind of magic film that's going to be a lot of fun to watch um, and is somehow going to be good for me. There is no film like that. So... Um, if you're if you're taking recommendations from people that you trust, you're, you're going to spend your time better. So um, I, I I do think that it's worth just sitting down and reading Jane Austen or Plato and and, and skipping the commentary or um, skipping the critics. Um, at the same time, I also think that that um, you need to trust someone. You need to find the the people that you trust more than yourself and read what they tell you yeah. to read, watch what they tell you to watch. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great point too. That is why we have the chalkboard in our house as well yeah, because that's good. we don't want to, you know, many of us have spent the time of like, let's have a family movie night and you spend half an hour just scrolling yeah. and not actually starting the movie. But if you have a list and you think, oh, I just read this movie review. This sounds interesting. I'm going to write it down. You're not going to remember. You think you will and you won't write it down so that when you next have a movie night, you are not endlessly doom scrolling Netflix. You're actually typing in the name of the movie to to hit play right um so yeah catalog good ideas from from wise people that's so smart okay so uh teachers who are listening you know i i actually just read your piece this morning about chat gpt so i wanted to ask you about that as well uh we are in a stage of teaching that i think could be best qualified as some form of wild west where we do Mm. not know 
we there aren't rules that are well established for navigating a lot of the crazy stuff we're faced with. However, there is some timeless truth that we can always employ. Um, what would you suggest for teachers? Wait, so far as chat GPT is concerned? Or Oh, that's just an example. And okay. I'll I'll link to that for people to read. I, I guess I just mean more how do you cultivate in your students or in your classroom maybe a preference for that which lasts over that which is temporary? So um, that's I think that that's a um, that's a big can of worms. I I think that one of the things a teacher has to do, a classical teacher, a teacher that that claims um, that the that the point of an education is to learn how to love what's good as a, as opposed to treating education as simply a means for getting what you want. Classical education is about learning to want good things. Um, so for the teacher, I think that the teacher has to kind of carve out the classroom space as a place where really good things have priority. Um, and so the, the, the role of the teacher is not to disparage everything outside of the classics, but to make room for the classics in a world that has almost no room for the classics. Um, So uh, because uncommon things are difficult, we often need someone to compel us to encounter them. Like if you did a, if you did a survey of every person who read paradise lost last year, I bet north of 95% of them read it because they were forced to for a class. Mm-hmm. And that's that tends to be the way that, that classics endure is that people in educational institutions like compel their students to read them because nobody picks those books and reads them for fun. Like you have to have a higher yeah. standard than that. Um, so I think that the teacher needs to approach classroom space as this kind of uh, this is going to, I'm going to say too much here, but the, the teacher needs to regard the classroom space as this kind of like quasi holy place yeah. or a place that's holy to classical things. And that if the, if the classroom, if there's not some place on planet earth that has carved out time for paradise lost and Solomon and Confucius and Arabian nights and Jane Austen, then they're just going to get if there's not someone out there who's making room for Mozart and Bach, these things are going to get lost. And, and so I think that the, the teacher has to be involved in this kind of perpetual carving out of classroom space as this place where we do this thing that almost no one else does out there. Um, so that so that students understand the difficulty so that they understand the trying nature of showing up every day and reading Paradise Lost, even though it's not fun. The teacher has to acknowledge up front that we're doing this difficult thing. We're, we're like the knights in Raiders of the Law, or uh, the third one, um, Last Crusade. Uh, yes. The keepers of the grail, right? Like that's, that's kind of what the teacher does. Like they're a part of this mm-hmm. not secret society that holds on to the old things and guards them and keeps them safe. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, anyone that signs up for this is not thinking that it's going to be, um, uh, you know, a cakewalk, but, but you're signing up to do this very difficult, very noble thing that, that only a few people are going to be involved in. 
And so I'm going to ask that you take it seriously for that reason. That, that, that the world doesn't need everyone to read classics, but it needs people to keep classics alive. And if you're at this school, mm-hmm. then that's your lot in life. That's what that's what your parents <laughs> determined for you. That's right. That's right. I think it's also helpful, just practically speaking, as a teacher of classics, do not ask your student whether they like them, at least as yeah. part of your classroom strategy. Because the point is to not like them. Or the point is, if they don't like them, that that's not a problem with the material. That's a problem with them in right. that they are not wise yet. Right. Uh, and and that was just a small thing that I learned to tweak after a few months of my first foray teaching. Mm-hmm. And that I tell my students who are you know juniors and seniors that I'm not assigning this for their 17-year-old selves. I'm assigning it for their 37-year-old selves. So 20 years that's from good. now, you might look back and say, thank you for assigning this. Uh, you know, thank you for making me read confessions. I I did not like it at the time. I thought it was terrible. But, you know, um, just practically speaking, have the long game, I think, as a teacher is is hugely helpful. Yes. That you're not in this to to persuade them to love it. That's not that's not often going to happen. Um, I really appreciate your teaching of of teaching to teachers I took your, I don't know, was last summer the first time you, you had your conference? It was. Last summer was the first okay. conference, yeah. Okay. So I was, I, I attended it. I have been to many a teacher training and this was the first time, I, I, I'm told this to you, this was the first time it felt uh, a good use of my time oh, because I, I took pages and pages of notes and listened to it again. And to me, that's a good hallmark of something that could actually be both inspiring and practical. And so I, I signed up immediately for this summer's and I think there's still room, right? What, yes. what is your plan for the summer? Like what, what are you going to be covering? Um, well, the goal is, uh, the goal is a conference that's entirely uh, committed to helping teachers do their work better. It's um, I'll be giving eight lectures and a friend is giving a lecture and they're all how to lectures. They're all how to lectures on how to teach Various classics: How to teach the Divine Comedy, how to teach, um, how to teach Frankenstein, how to teach uh, rhetoric, how to teach history, how to teach political philosophy. Um, friend and colleague of mine is uh, How to Teach Latin. Uh, his talk actually has a great title: How to Teach Latin Less Unclassically. And it's all <laughs> um, the goal is is to give teachers. Um, a very practical, actionable ideas for their classrooms uh, that don't require a curriculum purchase and don't require board approval. So you hear the lecture, you like the idea, you can do things differently when, when class starts next year. Yeah. 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 So I will put a link in the show notes, both to love what lasts and this conference, because I found it such a good use of my time. It's all virtual. So I, you know, you can fold laundry as you listen to you yeah. <laughs> talk. Uh, it's July. Ooh, it's, uh, this one's June 23rd and 24th. Oh. Online. In just a few weeks then. That's, That's right. Great. Yeah. Still room. All right. Okay. Very cool. So as we tend to end all episodes, all chats, we ask each other, what is something adding more truth, goodness, or beauty to our lives? So Joshua, do you have anything right now in your own personal life that's doing just that? It's adding more truth, goodness, or beauty. Yes. Um, at the moment, uh, I just finished this year's teaching of the Divine Comedy. And uh, we spent 
a good deal of time in the purgatorio. And uh, so my mind's kind of been in the purgatorio for several weeks now. And um, I've been, I've spent a lot of time meditating on this idea that, um, that the path to life is a, is a narrow one. And um, in advising students that are about to go out into the world uh, from high school off to college, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the narrow path and the idea that sometimes the narrow path is even more narrow than at other moments in life. Um, and that those first years out of your family home, that narrow path is arguably more narrow than, than it ever is at any other time. Um, but this but this metaphor that the Lord gives of, of the righteous life being a narrow path is one that um, just kind of always thinking about anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just gotten a lot out of uh, reminding myself yeah. of it, thinking of it often throughout the day. Speaking of, of things you could do 30 times and not grow tired of, uh, what, what translation of the Divine Comedy do you teach from or do you prefer? Um, so I like to have two copies around. Uh, I like Dorothy Sayers' version for her notes. Um, I think yes. Dorothy Sayers' notes are um, un, unrivaled. I, I don't think yeah. anyone – I don't know that anybody did better literary criticism than Dorothy Sayers did in the notes of the Divine Comedy. Uh, I sure. don't love her translation though. So um, uh-huh. I, I use Mark Muse's translation when I'm, when I'm teaching it. Uh, but I could not teach Muse's translation if I didn't have Dorothy Sayers notes. Gotcha. All right. Just curious. Yeah. Um, as for me, my 15 year old son and I are reading the summer, the once and future King by TH white. I have never read it before. I've never and read so it. to Okay. So to me, it was just a, you know, it's been on my list for a long time. I'm wildly curious about it. So I have started, I am probably three fourths near the end of the first part. It is a very big, it's actually three books in one, sometimes four, depending on what mm-hmm. version you get. The older the book, uh, the older the copy you get, the more, um, the little, the more trippy it is <laughs> actually. So I, I have been reading an old version and I have been legitimately laughing out loud. I did not know it was as funny as it is. Hmm. Um, it's really great. So if you're looking for a book that's not, you know, a beach read per se, but it's also not hard to read at all. This was written in the, I want to say, 1948, something like that, soon after World War II. Okay. Um, then The Once and Future King might be up your alley. It's about King Arthur. It's about Merlin. It's about, you know, Lancelot and Guinevere and all that good stuff. Um, but he makes a lot of social commentary related to World War II and the 20th century in general. So it, it's a fun read. It's not going to blow your brains with the astute wisdom from the ages, but it's really, it's a fun read. So I would recommend anybody looking for something fun uh, for you or for your teen. My, my kid likes it as well right now. All right, guys, it is time to wrap up this chat. As always, you can find this episode as well as all of them at drinkwithafriend.com. And that's where you can find out how to support the show. You can find me and how, how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Joshua, where can people find you and your work? I'm not exactly sure the best place. Yeah, gibbsclassical.com is my website. Um, yeah. And uh, I have a podcast called Proverbial that can be found with a pretty simple Google search. And then... Um, I blog for the Cersei Institute. My blog is called The Cedar Room. Yes. Okay. We'll put links to all of that stuff so people don't have to go searching. 
Thank you so much for the chat. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter, and Seth and I will be back here with you again soon. Thanks for listening, and thank you so much, Joshua, for being with us. It has been a delight to finally get to chat with you. Absolutely. Thank you. 